Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So, dress listeners, welcome to the show. As you know, a couple weeks ago, I was in New York City attending the Ethel Traphagen School of Fashion exhibition at FIT. And Ethel Traphagen was this American fashion pioneer. She's an outspoken critic about the vice grip that French fashion had on American consumers in the early 20th century. She really was a force to be reckoned with. And so, when French fashion designers reintroduced floor length gowns in 1929, after over a decade with out them, she was furious. And she was so furious that she wrote this diatribe to the New York Times and they printed it. And that was on November 3rd, 1929. So I'm just going to read you um, a snippet from that. And she said, one great good the world war accomplished was to free women from the curse of stupidity and the matter of clothes. And now comes this effort to set women back a century. These atrocities are ground-sweeping filth collectors, dragging the germs from the streets into the home and defeating the best sanitary efforts of the 20th century. It is an everlasting shame that civilization has no adequate weapon to combat this many-headed beast, French fashion. That is trying to exercise a more complete tyranny than any monarch the world has ever known. Wow. Okay, Cass, it may be a little bit of an understatement to say that she was upset. I think she was irate. Um, But maybe that is understandably because throughout the 19-teens and into the 1920s, uh, fashion had been progressing towards modernity, you know, shortened hemlines, clothing that moved away from the body, clothing that was both comfortable and fashionable. We've we've touched on this again and again and again on the show. But this new change in fashion that starts to happen toward the end of the 20s, it seemed like a huge setback. You know, especially when you consider that for thousands of years, women had been wearing floor-sweeping gowns. Right. And that leads us to our fashion history mystery question for today that comes to us from at Cultura1990. And she wrote to us in a direct message on Instagram, didn't long skirts get really dirty all the time in the 19th century? <laughs> so mm-hmm. we thought this was a great addendum to last week's Fashion History Mystery in which we addressed how women protected their garments from sweat stains historically. So April, how did women protect their garments from the streets? Ah, so um, Cultura 1990 asked us about the 19th century, but this was a very serious problem for actually hundreds of years. Um, and dating all the way back to like in Italy and especially in Venice in the 16th and 17th centuries, one way that women dealt with this was by wearing tall platform shoes. Um, and in particularly in Italy, they were called Chopin. And they were incredibly tall platform heels made of materials such as cork or wood. I mean, if you were super wealthy, your platforms were higher, they could be cast all the way up to 20 inches. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so if you think like club kid shoes of the 1990s were like impractical and crazy and hard to walk in, imagine trying to walk in 20-inch platforms. Um, and, and they couldn't either. It's not like they had some magic solution to this problem. <laughs> 
they actually required assistance to walk. Um, and, and they had like people that like held their hands as they walked around, which is of course another symbol, the, the fact that you're incredibly wealthy, um, you know, if you can hire someone to do this. So these platform shoes at that time served both a practical and a symbolic purpose. Yeah, and there's this fantastic Hilburn article, and Hilburn is um, this timeline of art history that's on the Metropolitan Museum of Arts website. It's this incredible resource for articles, especially in fashion history, so check it out. But there's this wonderful article by Harold Coda on Chopin's, and he writes, quote, the thick-soled raised shoe was designed to protect the foot from irregularly paved and wet or muddy streets, but the enhancement of the wearer's status also played a role. So, it's often associated with courtesans, um, but there is 16th century accounts that attest the height, quote, was associated with the level of nobility and grandeur of the Venetian woman who wore them rather than with any imputation as to her profession. So uh, originally there were no sumptuary laws in place to make this distinction between nobility and courtesans, but they were eventually established. And that's one of the points of sumptuary laws, right, is this increasing middle class um, that began to appear uh, in like the 15th and 16th centuries could afford to buy the same clothing that the nobility uh, wore. And so it was really important for these laws to make this distinction um, so that you didn't get these people confused. Yeah, and we've actually had a couple of requests um, for an episode on sumptuary laws, and we will get to that. Um, somebody wrote to us last week actually and recommended a really good book. So I'm looking into that. Um, but social status Side, you know, cast Chopin's were, were really necessary when you consider exactly how filthy the streets were historically. Oh gosh, yes. You know, <laughs> trash <laughs> so collection, <dirty. laughs> not so much a thing. Basically, you just threw it out in the street, um, including like out of your window into the city street, you know, and these streets were also often unpaved and they were littered with all kinds of other you know, not so great things like horse droppings. Um, and and that has to do with the fact that horses were, of course, the main form of transportation for centuries and centuries. So, Cass, that begs the question, whatever was a fashionable lady to do under these conditions? Well, April, if you were a woman in the early 19th century attempting to cross a dirty city street, you might be met by a crossing sweeper or street sweeper which was literally a person that would clear a path for you for a tip. So street sweepers were so common in London, for instance, that it became almost an archetypal character represented in art and literature. Um, but sadly, this was an occupation that was really undertaken by the urban poor, and it was often children and elderly men and women and the disabled who were offering you this service. Yeah, and, and at this time, it was a much debated profession. Um, you know, the public had like mixed feelings about it, you know, ranging from the incredibly negative. Um, in 1881, there was this one author, Richard Rowe, who called the profession, quote, a pretext for begging, um, to the positive with some people defending um, crossing sweeping as a legitimate profession and, and that it was actually a necessary service after all. And, and there are surprisingly a lot of primary source articles out there discussing this topic, this controversy of crossing sweeping or street sweepers. 
There really are. And in 1882, a quote-unquote lady pedestrian wrote the editors of the New York Times, and she was really upset at uh, what she perceived as the demise of the street sweeper. And she writes, A few years ago, there were many children and men who turned out immediately after a snowfall and were daily to be met during the thaw, brushing the crossings as clean as they could. For this small service, many foot passengers gladly gave a few small coins— regarding the sweepers not as beggars or vagrants, but as laborers whose hard and disagreeable work enabled well-shod people to pass neatly on their way. There has, however, been a prohibition of street sweepers. The result is that on Wednesday last, there was not one crossing on which the snow and mud did not come full two inches above the sole of a thick gator, and it was entirely impossible to find a single crossing to the opposite side of the avenue which could be trod without sinking to the ankle. Let us have the volunteer sweepers back for the comfort of a lady pedestrian. Oh, a lady pedestrian. Is that what we are when we just tramps around New York all day? <laughs> lady yes, pedestrians? exactly. Gentlemen and lady <laughs> pedestrians. <laughs> I have to admit, this is not exactly where I thought this episode was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, me either. When I started researching for this, I thought I was not thinking of human sweepers, um, which before this episode, I did not know existed after, um, if I'm being perfectly honest. But I was thinking of dress sweepers or Dust ruffles, which are also known as balayeuses, which is French for sweepers, so-called because of their quite literal function of sweeping the street. So these dust ruffles, which were pleated and attached to the underside of the skirt, could also be removed and washed. And as we've already discussed, this was a necessity. You know, in 1878, there was another article in Harper's Bazaar that defined the role of the balayeuse in the fashionable woman's wardrobe which says, balayeuse consisting of white muslin flounce edged with narrow lace, which comes below the edge of the dress where the flounces cut up to deep points are universally worn. This flounce, which is designed somewhat to protect the bottom of the dress, is set on all dresses for the day as well as evening. And Cass, as you know, this description accompanies a charming image of two children and three women that are roller skating. Yes, it roller skating. so cool. <laughs> was an activity in the 19th century, not just in the 1970s. In bustles. Yes, and uh, roller skating in bustles. And one of the women, um, uh, her belly is actually revealed and it's kind of like flying up into the wind. You can see it. And it actually should be said that during the 70s and 80s, women's day and walking dresses could be quite practical in the sense that they generally would have had shortened hems. And however, such was definitely not the case with evening wear in which trains could extend feet behind the bustled gowns fashionable during this era. One of my favorite bustle gowns is actually in the Mets collection and it's this exceptional red silk and peach dinner dress. It looks brand new. It's so incredibly beautiful. It's by Madame Graponche. It's from 1884 to 86. And the shelf of a bustle is literally, it extends from the wearer's back at this 90 degree angle. It's literally a shelf. <laughs> you could rest a drink on it. Um, mm -hmm. And then it ends in this multi-tiered ruffled hem, which sits atop a duster. And this duster is actually peeking out from the end and you can see it in the photograph. So I'm really grateful to whoever dressed that uh, dress for the photograph because it really allowed us to see this really important detail. Yeah. And by the 1920s or my, by 1920, when skirts had shortened well above the ankle for the day and the evening, this dust ruffle term um, becomes applied to a pleated edging. And even though it no longer um, swept or dusted the floor. This term would continue on in the context of fashion, um, but by the 1960s, this term dust ruffle seems to have been officially relegated to 
furniture. Most commonly now today, we use that term, and of course, as um, a little ruffle around the bed to keep the dust from getting in or I suppose out, depending on how you look (laughs) at it. And we cannot end this episode without discussing one other practical tool for the fashionable woman battling dirty floors at the turn of the century, and that is the skirt lifter, April. Or as the L.A. Wertheimer's uh, ad read, uh, for their fob and skirt lifter, something that is ornamental, practical, and useful. So their Florodora was a, quote, clever and perfect device made with a rubber-covered clasp and guaranteed not to crease or injure the heaviest broadclothing or the daintiest lace skirt. It also holds a watch, and it was made in gold, silver oxide, or French gray, black, or white ribbon. Yeah, so these were kind of like little ornaments that would would actually like like little garter clasps, right? That you could use to like lower and raise your skirt. Exactly. It was a very um, beautiful accessory. So it didn't really challenge, you know, what you were wearing. It, it fit in with your your garment of choice. Lots of options. And I just want to say about these mail order catalogs, because this is something you would order. So you would just send your money in and hope that they received it and sent it back. I guess it's a little bit of a hard concept for me to grasp today. <laughs> well, although, you know, as we've talked about on the show, I am a bit older than you. I remember ordering things as a child in the mail through mail order catalogs. Absolutely. And you would send That's in your true. check and then you would get your... Dahlia. That's yeah. right. The Dahlia yeah. or, catalog. <laughs> or you could do a um, like COD. Remember that? when w- Cash on delivery. So like when the postman would bring you the package, they wouldn't give it to you unless you paid them. Can you imagine all the mailmen walking around with money? <laughs> Is that what happened? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking back in the day. You would send your hard-earned dollars literally in the mail and hope that no one stole it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyways, just interesting. So Cass, is there any other fashion history business of the week that you would like to talk about? Well, I, yes, April. I did read an actually a very interesting article about these this escape the corset feminist movement. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes, in South Korea. Yeah, so young South Korean women that are participating in this escape the corset movement are essentially destroying all of their makeup and beauty products. Many of them are also cutting their hair, and they're really posting pictures on social media and encouraging other women to do the same. Yeah, so th- so the escape the corset movement in South Korea doesn't actually have to do with the corset. Like Cass says, it's a metaphor. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that um, beauty standards are very specific um, and uh, so much so that in South Korea, um, it is one of, not necessarily the, but one of the actual plastic surgery capitals of the world, Cass, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I read some statistics that say that 20% of South Korean women have had some sort of plastic surgery work done, and that is compared to 5% in the United States. So it's become... Um, a huge business in South Korea. There are more than 2,000 plastic surgeons, and there are these luxury complexes that are being built to accommodate the demand, not only from South Korea, but apparently, I had no idea about this either, there's also this whole influx of plastic surgery tourism, and you're seeing people coming in from China, Japan, Russia, and even the Middle East um, to go to these luxury plastic surgery centers that are that are in Korea. And this all has to do with beauty standards, right? 
Right. And as we've talked about many times on Dressed, often unattainable beauty standards, this idea that you're not beautiful the, that, the way you, were, you are, the way you were made, but that you need to somehow change yourself um, through makeup or plastic surgery to become um, what society wants you to be. So these women are really creating this powerful movement to fight back against these beauty standards and, and challenge that and doing it in a really public way. Social media, of course, has allowed us to do these things quite visually and vocally and uh, with world uh, repercussions. Yeah, I've seen some of these images of the women just like completely smashing all their makeup and it's pretty powerful. Right. And the article actually talks about how uh, it relates it to this time in, in the 1960s, 1968 specifically, when feminists protested the Miss America beauty pageant. And so women are like throwing their bras, their hairspray, their girdles, their corsets into their these like... fake eyelashes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> into this these freedom trash cans. So That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing is here we are still dealing with this 50 years later. So... Yeah, exactly. There's um, that. But I guess the point is wherever there is oppression, there will be women to fight it. That's right. Uh, I think that does it for us this week. Is there anything else you want to add? Nope, I think that does it for us too. Great. So please join us for our full-length episode on Tuesday. Um, and if you would like to write to us with a fashion history mystery question, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. And catch you on Tuesday. Catch you Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.